Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. The Bible. The Word of God. The Word of God? Really? But he didn't write it. He inspired it. Whatever that means. It was written by men. Human men. At least 39 of them. Over a 1,600-year period. Lots of room for error. And how many times has it been translated? How many times has it been copied? Hundreds of times? Thousands of times. Somewhere along the line, someone missed a comma or put a but in where it should have been an and. It's full of inconsistencies. Contradictions. You can't really take it literally. Seriously. It's a fairy tale. We have science now. It's certainly not unique. Every religion has their Bible. Quran. Islam. Vedas. Hindu. De Dao Ching. Buddhism, Dianetics, Scientology. What makes this one different? Real, true, authentic. Can I trust it? Can I build my life on it? Can I stake my eternity on it? Why believe in the Bible? Well, good morning to all of you here at Central Campus. Also, those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland in the south, and also meeting at the Crowfoot Theatres in the northwest part of Calgary. Uh, and of course, we, we don't want to forget about those of you who are watching online. Uh, some time ago, I was having a spiritual conversation with a young man, and somewhere in the conversation, he informed me that he didn't believe in the Bible because it was filled, in his words, with myths and fabrications and contradictions and the like. I said, wow, it sounds like you've really investigated the Bible thoroughly. Could you give me a few reasons why you've come to that conclusion? At that point, he broke eye contact with me, and he said, well, I guess I really haven't read it or studied it, but I've talked with and I have read a number of people who have, and a lot of what they say makes sense. I said, well, thanks for being honest with me about that. But let me ask you, how would you feel if I rejected you without ever getting to know you? If I did so solely on the basis of hearsay, what others say about you? I said, the Bible is either true or false. If it is false, well, then we would be foolish to follow it. But if it is true, then it deserves our attention because it says such sweeping things about our lives, like why we're here, how we can live this life to the fullest, and what we must do to prepare for the next life. And folks, I extend the same challenge to all of you today. Please do not ignore the Bible or write it off solely on the opinions of other people. If the teaching of Scripture is true, then the stakes are just much too high to do that. 
We're in a series called Why Believe, in which we're talking about what it is Christians believe and why it is they believe it. We're doing this series for two reasons. First of all, to encourage and to equip Christ followers to give an answer for the hope that they have in Christ Jesus, but also to address objections that people have with respect to the Christian faith. And presently, we're looking at some of the major evidences for the validity of the Bible. The first witness that I called to the stand last time to testify to the trustworthiness of the Bible is the testimony of biblical inspiration and infallibility. One objection that people raise concerning the validity of the Bible is how do we know what people wrote in the Bible is from God and therefore true? Did the original writers just make it up? Well, Christians believe that the Bible originated in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. However, God chose to deliver his divine message through people, through what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, was God-breathed or divinely inspired. Divine inspiration means that God so superintended the writers of Scripture that they wrote what God wanted them to write, even though they applied their own personalities to their writing, and they were kept from error in doing so. The fact that the biblical writers were so honest and presented themselves as petty and as jealous and as cowardly or that they included some of the hard, the very unpopular, even revolutionary sayings of Jesus. Not to mention the willingness on the part of a number of the writers in the New Testament to endure torture and to die a very cruel death for their beliefs. All of these serve as strong evidence that they just didn't make this up. I mean, if you're going to make it all up anyways, why not make yourself look really good? Why not make Jesus look really good? And why not exclude anything that has the potential of turning people off and prevent them from following Jesus, like his revolutionary sayings? If you're, all, if you're just making it all up, why would you die for what you know is a lie? It just doesn't make sense. The biblical writers made it up. Also, the original New Testament scriptures in our Bible today were written from as early as 15 years to as late as 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the basic creeds that people memorized and the doctrines of the Christian faith that we find in the New Testament, they were being memorized and they were being circulated in the early church in printed form. They were being recited. They were being sung in worship services by the early Christians as early as a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's significant because it means that there were still people alive who had witnessed Jesus' life, his teachings, his death and his resurrection. And if the creeds that were being recited, if the scriptures that, of Paul, for example, and the gospel writers that were being read in the services, if they were untrue or if they were distorted or if they were being embellished, 
there were hundreds of people still alive who would have stood up essentially and said, that's not true. That is not the way that it happened. That is not what Jesus said because I was there. No differently than if I wrote a book claiming that back in September 11, 2001, the World Trade Center towers were destroyed by lasers from a spacecraft. Thousands of people would stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not true. I was there. And so one reason that Christians believe in the validity of the Bible is because of the testimony of biblical inspiration and infallibility. So let me call on our second witness. Christians believe in the validity of the Bible because of the testimony of manuscript reliability. As I indicated last time, we no longer have the original writings of Scripture in our possession. The original Old Testament and New Testament documents, they were written on papyrus, which unfortunately have long been reduced to dust. However, copies of the original were made, and over time, copies of copies were made because this material deteriorated, which of course causes skeptics to ask, so even if I were to acknowledge that the original writings of the Bible are true and accurate, given that it was copied and translated numerous times down through time, how can we be sure that what we read in the Bible today is the same as when the Bible was first written? Isn't it possible that some significant changes or errors have been made since the originals were written? Dr. Frank Harbour, in his book, Reasons for Believing, it says that in terms of reliable manuscript transmission, the Bible is the most trustworthy document from all of antiquity. It stands without a single peer. Well, let's explore why he would say that. In the Old Testament era, scribes were employed to copy the books of the Old Testament on a regular basis because, as I said, papyrus deteriorated. These scribes believed the scriptures to be the word of God and therefore they went to great lengths to ensure that each manuscript was meticulously accurate. They followed strict Jewish traditions which included counting every line, every word, every letter to find any mistakes. Well, around 70 years ago, the world discovered firsthand just how precise these scribes were when they made their copies. You see, up until 1947, the oldest copy of the Old Testament was the Masoretic Text, which is dated A.D. 900. However, in 1947, a Bedouin herdsman accidentally found what is now referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. He found them in some caves near a community called Qumran, North, on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. Evidently, somewhere between 150 B.C. and 70 A.D., a strict sect of Jews called the Ascends, functioning very much like a monastery, lived around Qumran. They worked the fields. They spent most of their time studying and copying the Old Testament scriptures. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., 
It appears the Essenes, they knew that it was only a matter of time when the Romans would come for them as well and would destroy them. And so they put their leather scrolls called parchments. They put them in jars and they hid them in the many caves that you see in the side of the cliffs west of the Dead Sea. The hundreds of manuscripts found in this incredible discovery contained the complete book of Isaiah and significant portions of almost every other book in the Old Testament. They were dated from 250 B.C. to 100 B.C., which means they were a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. Now, of course, many people wondered if there was a significant difference between the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea manuscripts that were a thousand years older. Well, amazingly, after a very careful analysis, the scholars reported that only a very small percent of variation could be found between them, and most of the variations were differences in spelling. And none had any bearing on the essential meaning of the biblical passage. Now, folks, that is huge because it provides strong evidence that the copies of the Old Testament that we have today accurately represent what was originally written and therefore can be trusted. Now, something that also helps verify the accuracy of biblical manuscripts in general, but particularly the New Testament, is the number of copies that there are. The more copies of the ancient handwritten manuscripts that you have, the more evidence you have to determine just how accurate and how consistent the writings are. For example, if one manuscript says one thing, but then you have hundreds or perhaps even thousands of manuscripts that say something else, well, it's pretty clear which manuscripts most accurately represent the original. And so the more copies you have, the better when it comes to this matter of determining accuracy of transmission. Now, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Uh, these writers have had enormous influence over the years, particularly uh, through university classes, and their writings are basically accepted at face value. And what I mean by that is no one questions whether they were passed down to us accurately. But did you know that there are only seven existing ancient handwritten copies of Plato and only 49 copies of Aristotle's writings? Compare that to the number of copies that we have of the Bible. According to Dr. Max Anders, we have over 10,000 partial or complete manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures and we have over 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, and there are more that are being found all the time. And these are still available to us to study and to compare and to ensure that the Bible was passed down accurately from the original writings. According to Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, he's professor of New Testament and biblical theology, and he's author of over 20 books. He says the Bible is the best-preserved document of the ancient world. Homer's Iliad is second, with a mere 643 existing manuscripts, while 
most ancient works, like the works of Plato, Caesar, the works of the Roman historian I referred to last time, Tacitus. On average, all of the ancient materials have less than 10 copies, apart from the scriptures. But the evidence doesn't stop there. Bruce Metzger, professor emeritus at Princeton, he points out that in, in addition to the more than 5,700 New Testament manuscripts written in the original Greek, we also have copies of the New Testament in Latin, in Syriac, and Coptic that were translated from the Greek manuscripts early on. And what that means is, he says, is even if we had no Greek manuscripts today, because of the significant number of these early translations in other languages, we could accurately reproduce the contents of the entire New Testament from them. But that is not all. Dr. Daniel Wallace points out, the early church fathers quoted so often from the New Testament scriptures that even if we didn't have any ancient copies of the New Testament, we'd be, it would be possible for us to reconstruct almost the entire New Testament from their writings alone. All told, there are more than one million quotations of the New Testament in the writings of the early church fathers, dating from as early as the first century right through to the 13th century. According to Dr. Frank Harbour, all but 11 verses of the New Testament can be reconstructed from the quotations of the early church fathers, which tells us that if the early church fathers were quoting all but 11 verses of the Bible less than 200 years after the death of Christ, then we can know that the manuscripts that they were actually quoting from dated less than 200 years after the death of Christ. But not only are the ancient New Testament manuscripts unequaled in terms of their quantity and their quality, they also are unequaled in terms of the time span between the original writings and the first copies. You see, the greater the time span between the original writings and the ancient copies available to us today, the harder it is to discern how closely our copies today are aligned with the original writings. So, for example, take the Roman writer Pliny the Younger, who lived about a century after Christ. The time span between when he actually wrote um, his, uh, his writings and the oldest manuscript available to us today is 750 years. In the case of Plato, the difference of the time spread between when he wrote and the first copy that's available to us today is 1,200 years. So what about the New Testament? Well, archaeologists have found portions of the New Testament dated between 100 A.D. to 150 A.D., telling us that the first copies of the original scriptures began as early as 125 A.D. or between 50 to 75 years of the originals. According to Dr. Daniel Wallace, 
by 325 AD, or within 225 years of the original writings of the New Testament, there were numerous copies of the entire New Testament which are still available to us today. And they have copies, parts of the New Testament available from the first century and the second century as well. But the entire New Testament is available from the third century on. In short, says Dr. Wallace, we have more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts about the person of Jesus Christ than anyone else in, ancient, in the ancient world, including Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. Now, while skeptics try to discredit the validity of the Bible by pointing out that there are hundreds of thousands of variants or errors between the thousands of ancient manuscripts that we have today, the truth is the vast majority of these variations, as I pointed out last time, are differences in spelling. And according to Dr. Wallace, one of the world's foremost authorities on textual criticism, he says, no cardinal doctrine is jeopardized in any way by these variations. According to Dr. Norman Geisler, the New Testament then has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a pure form than any other great book, a form that he says is 99.5% pure. Put another way, based on the evidence that we've just touched on, we can have full confidence that other than very minor differences, none of which affect the essential message, the essential theological content of the Bible, what we read in our Bible today is an accurate and a faithful representation of what the biblical writers originally wrote. Which brings me to call upon our third witness. Christians believe in the validity of the Bible because of the testimony of archaeology. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he's riding on a colt. And he is greeted by a large crowd of his followers who adore him, spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and they joyfully praise God for all of the miracles that they have witnessed through him. And they shout aloud, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Some of the religious leaders were watching this and they became annoyed for the crowd was obviously worshiping Jesus. And so they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, if they kept silent the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The stones would cry out. Now, though it is likely that Jesus intended for this to be a figurative statement, the fact is the stones are crying out to the truth of God's word today. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is filled with so many details that seem unrelated to its essential message? Why the Bible lists scores of cities and places and kings and genealogies and on and on it goes? 
I mean, why not save some paper and some hard drive space and just record the essential message? Well, God always has his reasons, doesn't he? And so even if we don't understand his reason now, we can know that God will in time, in his time, he will reveal his purpose. And we're seeing this played out now with respect to the scriptures. For example, prior to the 19th century, in what is often referred to as the age of reason or the age of enlightenment, skeptics severely criticized the Bible for containing a litany of so-called facts, including people in places and battles and dates that were not based on reality. In other words, they said that none of these things, these places and, and these events that are recorded in the scripture, they can't be found in the secular historical record. This fueled the mindset that the Bible consisted primarily of myths and legends and a growing number of people at that time began to dismiss the Bible and the Christian faith as a result. And then the stones began to cry out. About the time the Bible was under severe attack, archaeologists began to dig beneath the surface of the earth in the land of the Bible. And they found ancient cities and civilizations that they never knew existed. Cities not recorded in secular history, but recorded in the Bible. As these digs continued over time, people in places that skeptics had written off as mistakes in the Bible were confirmed to be real. In fact, many things that were questioned by scholars in the 18th and 19th century have since been verified as factual, including many of the cities and the rulers and the important people that we find in the Bible. In a few cases where the secular historical record said one thing and the, the Bible said another, in other words, they disagreed, archaeological discoveries have consistently proven the biblical account to be true and to be right. Let me give you some examples I've gotten from various sources, including Dr. John Dixon, Dr. James Kennedy, Dr. John McRae, Paul Little, and, and others. One of the nations that the Israelites had dealings with was the Hittites, who are mentioned in 41 different chapters in the Old Testament. Now, don't confuse the Hittites with the Hudrites, okay, or the Mennonites, or any one of those people, okay? We're, 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 we're talking about the Hittites here, all right. The historians have never been able to find any trace of the existence of this group called the Hittites. And for years, critics used this as an example of how the Bible lacked credibility. However, this was laid to rest when Dr. Hugo Winkler went to an area to dig where the Hittites were supposed to have lived. In that dig, he discovered over 40 of their cities, including their capital, along with a number of monuments describing their activities. Another example. Historians believe that Abraham's home city of Ur did not exist. Well, an archaeological dig not only discovered the ancient city of Ur, but one of the columns that they unearthed had the inscription Abram etched right into it, which you will remember was Abraham's original name when he actually lived in the city of Ur before God called him 
and renamed him Abraham as part of his covenant with him. Or consider this. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is referred to as the last king of Babylon. And yet nowhere um, was his name to be found in the Babylonian records. In fact, all known Babylonian records listed Nabonidus as the last king. Again, critics, they saw this as a clear-cut contradiction, and obviously, from their perspective, the Bible was clearly wrong. However, in 1956, archaeologists unearthed three stones that contained inscribed information that told the rest of the story. It seems what really happened was that King Nabonidus left Babylon for 10 years and went on a hiatus to Arabia. We're not sure why. And while he was gone, he appointed his son Belshazzar to rule as king in his place during the time of Daniel, which of course is when the Bible refers to him as being king. Another example. For years, critics claimed that King David never existed because there was no evidence anywhere of his reign. But then in 1993, archaeologists found an inscription bearing the phrases, House of David, King of Israel. The writing dated to the 9th century only 100 years after David's reign. A year later, scholar Andrew Lemaire reported in Biblical Archaeological Review a further find in which the house of David appeared etched on an unearthed Moabite stone. Again, you see, the stones cried out and confirmed the biblical account that King David was, in fact, the king of Israel. These findings have had significant positive impact on all kinds of people down through time, including archaeologists themselves. Dr. W. F. Albright, late professor emeritus at John Hopkins University, he said this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of Old Testament tradition. Dr. Miller Burroughs of Yale stated this, on the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the, reli- excuse me, the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation of Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. This is a real contribution and should not be minimized. Now archaeology has also added much credibility to the New Testament record as well. Sir William Ramsey, he was an atheist. He was the son of atheists. He got his PhD from Oxford University and he gave his whole life to archaeology. He set out for the Holy Land, determined to disprove the book of Acts, which gives the account of the early church and is filled with a significant amount of detail. After 25 years of archaeological investigation, he was incredibly impressed by the accuracy of Dr. Luke in his writing of the book of Acts. Ramsey finally declared 
that the book of Acts was exact down to the minute detail and that he himself was now a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Critics of the New Testament have argued there is no evidence that there ever was a Pontius Pilate who gave the order for Jesus to be put to death. But again, the stones cried out. In the city of Capernaum, archaeologists found an inscription written during the time of Tiberius Caesar, and it mentions Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 5, the Apostle John makes reference to a pool in Jerusalem that is surrounded by five covered colonnades, a pool in which people would go into to be healed. Again, critics insisted that this was a figment of John's imagination because pools in that day just were not built that way. But then the stones cried out. Archaeologists eventually found the pool that John referred to, the pool of Bethesda. And if you've ever been there like I have, even though like most ancient sites, it is about 20, 25 feet below street level, it has five porticos exactly as the Bible describes. And then just one more example. As I pointed out previously, there are a small group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar who along with Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code, they've just gotten a lot of press claiming the idea that Jesus is God was never embraced by the early church, but it was actually something that was invented in the 4th century by Constantine. They claim that Emperor Constantine wanted a God figure ruling the empire and so he elevated Jesus from just being a good Jewish teacher to being God. The way that he did this, he called all of the bishops of the ancient church together in AD 325, about 300 of them, in what is now called the Nicene Council. And he essentially pressured them into agreeing to make Jesus God. That's the claim. Now you need to know for reasons that we've already talked about, the vast majority of scholars vehemently disagree with this theory. In fact, the bishops who were called together, they already believed that Jesus was God. Their discussion centered around the nature of Jesus' deity, not that he was God. However, that aside, the stones have cried out with respect to this issue as well. Historian and scholar Dr. John Dixon says archaeologists uncovered a house in the middle of Israel that had been renovated into a church that predates Emperor Constantine and the Council of Nicaea by more than a century. And on the floor of that little church, they found a mosaic which contains an inscription that tells us about a woman who offered a table from which a memorial, and I quote, of the God Jesus Christ was had. The memorial was likely communion, but here we have clear reference to Jesus being referred to as God by an early church almost a hundred years before Constantine even arrived on the planet. 
or the Council of Nicaea being held. A truly remarkable find and an affirmation that Jesus was seen as God by Christians long before Constantine came into the picture. Now, while there is much in the Bible yet to be verified by archaeology, the fact is the spades of archaeologists have uncovered innumerable facts that confirm the Bible. If you've ever visited Israel, you know that archaeological digs are everywhere. In fact, well over 25,000 sites have been discovered that pertain to the Bible. Records of tens of thousands of people and places and events have been found. Renowned archaeologist Dr. Nelson Gluick, he has said this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted, in other words, contradicted, a single properly understood biblical reference. And so you see, as we continue to examine the evidence, it is increasingly pointing in the direction that the Bible is not a collection of myths, but that it is in fact true. The Word of God. And fellow Christian, I trust that that encourages your faith today. Jesus and His Word is a rock upon which we can stand. His promises are true. His teachings are true. And yes, His guidance and His warnings, they need to be taken seriously because they are true. For those of you who are still seeking, I'm looking forward to sharing even more compelling evidence with you. But here's the thing. Even if I could present such a compelling case that your honest questions would be fully answered, you could still choose to live like it weren't true. Like it isn't true. For example, scientific research is clear that smoking is a hazard to your health. And yet millions still smoke. We know that exercise, even moderate exercise, is good for our health. Yet many do not exercise. You see, it's one thing to know the truth, to, to have the evidence right before us. It is another to embrace that truth and to begin to live our lives according to that truth. It is one thing to know about God. It is quite another to know God personally. It is one thing to believe in God. It is another to believe God, to actually trust Him. It is one thing to have an intellectual understanding for the existence of God. It is quite another to experience God in the crucible of life itself. Many years ago, the Chicago School of Divinity had a special guest lecturer come in for a brown bag lunchtime symposium. His lecture focused on disproving that Jesus was the Son of God. For the better part of an hour, he tried to make a case that Jesus never really did die on the cross, he never rose from the grave, that it's all a lie. 
And he went on like this for the better part of an hour. And at the end of his presentation, there was a question and answer time. At the very back of the room, an older man stood up and said, Sir, I have a question. And he pulled an apple out of his lunch bag and he started eating the apple. He says, now I don't know all the historians that you just quoted and he took another bite from his apple. And he said, I don't know all of the languages that you know. And he took another bite from his apple. And he says, and I don't know all of the arguments that you just presented. And he took another bite from his apple. But I do have a question for you. This apple that I'm holding, is it bitter or sweet? And the lecturer said, well, I'm sorry, sir, I can't tell you the answer to that because I haven't tasted your apple. And the old man replied, with all due respect, sir, you haven't tasted my Jesus either. friend, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Truth is discovered not only by studying the evidence of the past, as important as that is. Truth is also found in living, in tasting, in having a relationship with Jesus in the present. As I've said before, seek the truth. By all means, bring your questions to God Find those answers you're looking for. But remember, that will only take you so far. You need to taste. You need to experience God. And that's going to require a couple of things. One of it is going to require you facing those things that are keeping you from trusting God. Some of you are avoiding God or you're keeping God at a safe, comfortable distance, not because of a lack of evidence but because of an issue of pride. You want to be in control. And you don't want anyone, including God, messing with your life. For others of you, the issue is fear. The issue is fear of what others around you are going to think. Perhaps someone that you really respect, like a father, or perhaps a good friend, or maybe a university professor that you looked up to, once made a statement like, you know, only fools would believe in Jesus or in the Bible. And you fear their reaction to you if you were to put your trust in the God of the Bible. Still, for others of you, it's hurt. You were mistreated by a Christian once, taken advantage of. Or maybe there was someone from the opposite sex that you had great fondness for, and, and they rejected you. And you've never really gotten over it. There's bitterness inside. And you've not only rejected that person, but you've rejected the God that person claims to know and love. Or you had a terrible upbringing in a so-called Christian home and it scarred you. Or you or maybe a member of your family had a bad church experience 
Whatever it is, you're avoiding God. You're avoiding the truth, not because you really need more evidence, but because there's pride, there's fear, or maybe there's hurt that has built a steel wall around your heart and you won't let anyone or anything penetrate it. Please understand that you can do with your life as you please. I'm just asking you, is it really more evidence that you're looking for? Or is there a dark place in the corner of your heart that's just keeping you from really being open with God and saying to you and keeping you from, uh, from praying and, and asking him to reveal himself to you that's keeping you from tasting from, from putting your trust in God and experiencing his reality and his friendship in your life. Friend, I just plead with you. Don't play games with yourself. Don't, don't play games with God. If you know deep down inside that there's a God, if you know that this is all ringing true, don't run away from that because there's hurt in your life. I ask you again, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with his word? From my perspective, it's too important a decision to ignore. Because if the Bible is true, then ignoring Jesus, ignoring the truth of the Bible, will not only mean that we're going to miss God's best for us, but it's going to impact where we spend our eternity. And folks, that is no small matter. That deserves our full attention. The stakes are high as far as I'm concerned. Would you please stand with me for closing prayer? If you want to talk with someone about perhaps a question that you have, something that you're struggling with, if you feel something inside of you just prompting you, pulling at you, to make your peace with God or to put your trust in Jesus or if you want someone to pray with you about a hurt, a fear an issue of pride that you realize is getting in the way here or if you're a Christian but you realize today that you've been simply neglecting the scriptures you've been picking and choosing what you will follow in the scriptures and you know that you need to deal with this rebelliousness inside of you there are prayer partners who are making their way up right now there are staff in our church that are making their way up here right now who would love to talk with you and pray with you so come now just as you are come even as I pray in a moment let us pray Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for revealing yourself through Jesus, the living word, and also for revealing yourself through the written word, the Bible. You have given us the scriptures not only to help us to understand who you are and how much you love and care for us, but also how we can live this life to the full. Thank you for the evidence that you have provided for the reliability of the scriptures. Thank you for the stones that cry out to this day that testify to the truth of your word. 
Thank you also, Lord, for the reminder that truth is not found in the evidence of the past, or at least not solely in the past. It is found by tasting of your reality, tasting your friendship each and every day. And so, Lord, help every person here to realize in a new way that if we ignore your word, we risk not only missing out on your best for our lives, but we risk having to endure a lot of heartache and a lot of frustration and a lot of despair in this life, not to mention eternal separation from you and eternal separation from your love in the next life. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who's resisting the truth right now. I pray for anyone who's avoiding you and the Bible because they don't want to face the truth about who they are. They don't want to face their fear, their hurt, their pride. I pray, Lord, that you will help them to see that you did not send Jesus. You, you did not give us the scriptures to make our life miserable, but to make our life complete, full of your love and your joy and your peace. Lord, I would pray that you would create in anyone who's still running from you, that you would create in them a growing hunger for you, a thirst for truth, and a restlessness until they find their rest in you. Lord, I pray for those of us who fully embrace you and fully embrace your word by faith. May we have a renewed hunger to read it, to meditate on it, Lord, and to trust the scriptures by living it out faithfully in our lives, even when it doesn't always make perfect sense to do so. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that along with you, Jesus, it's a rock upon which we can stand. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.